Welcome to Most Popular, the podcast that can help you understand why we can care deeply about our own mental health and also the mental health of any of the Real Housewives. Or maybe you don't care. I I find it interesting when these folks put themselves on television. I'm Dr. Adrian Trierbenik. I am your host, and I am a real-life professor of sociology. I created this podcast to combine my two loves, pop culture, and the impact it has on our lives. Today, I am talking with Dr. Eileen Fulchange. Um, I think it's important to mention at the onset that we recorded this pretty much in the middle of the the coronavirus, COVID pandemic, whatever you want to call it, uh, at a time where um, discussing mental health, particularly with the folks who have been on lockdown or have been staying at home or just aren't able to do the things that they would normally do to make themselves feel uh, better or be out in the world. We recorded this at the height of that, so you're going to hear a lot of reference to that. Dr. Full Change is a Taiwanese-American multilingual licensed psychologist in Texas, and she received her PhD in counseling, clinical, and school psychology from the University of California, Santa Barbara. She specifically works with families um, in many capacities. She's done public school education. She's done school leadership in California. She was an educational consultant for Title I schools around the world. She is the founder of the Full Change Therapy, and she is a nationally recognized speaker. She also does a lot of her work on what's called trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. So she has a specialty in trying trying to help people understand trauma and how that works in multiple capacities. She does a better job of explaining it than I ever will as we talk, but I think it's important to point that out at the onset. I wanted to talk to her um, ever since I met her in a workshop I was taking uh, part in, mainly because um, trauma has become a very big buzzword and something that is used a lot uh, in our culture right now. And I think it's important that we understand what that word means and and um, how it affects our brains, how it affects our behavior, all of that stuff. Um, when we're talking about pop culture, I think the word of the last probably three years, one of the top ones, besides maybe pandemic, uh, had to be trauma. So um, I'm very excited to bring this discussion to you, and I hope you enjoy it. Thanks for having me, Adrian. So um, I also wanted to share, because this is going to be relevant, I think, in the in the podcast, that I am a uh, Taiwanese and American woman, uh, born in the United States, but from uh, descended from ancestors in Taiwan. My parents immigrated from Taiwan as adults. So I just wanted to introduce that, because that'll inform, inform some of the other answers I give. Oh, for sure. And you speak Spanish. And I speak Spanish. Yes. Yeah. And the majority of my students do too. So this is a big deal for all of us. <laughs> so can you tell us how you got into doing the work that you do, how you got into doing psychology and therapy? Yeah. Uh, so I actually had a whole other career before this career as a licensed psychologist. I was in education. Um, I actually started off as a, my first real job was as a math teacher in Oakland Unified School District. I'm originally from California. And I entered education because I thought that that was the venue through which I could really address some of the inequities that I either experienced or saw, um, and especially inequities around race. And I remembered this quote from Nelson Mandela, uh, something along the lines that education is the great equalizer. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that led me into the education world. And I loved working with my students. I was a middle school math teacher. 
um, I began to work in the educational system, I started to recognize that teaching math was not going to uh, solve some of the inequities that I saw and it, and that I really was completely ill-equipped to address some of the other issues that I saw were coming in, in my classroom. Um, I had students who were coming in with significant trauma histories and also significantly traumatic environments. Um, most of my students were black and brown and um, uh, I had students coming in either with no housing or unstable housing, violence in their homes and their communities, uh, limited access to healthcare, sometimes without having had food. So uh, I began to look into integrating some social emotional learning into the classroom. And I actually got a lot of pushback. Um, my, I remember my principal at the time telling me that I was actually too warm and fuzzy as if I needed to be, I don't know, cold and cruel, I guess, <laughs> which um, for those folks who uh, know anything about the educational system, a lot of our policies are actually arguably cold and cruel. Mm -hmm. um, so it was after that pushed back that I realized, you know, I don't know that education in and of itself is the great equalizer. And so I wanted to learn more about healing, healing at an individual level uh, and also at a community level. So there is that aspect. And then also coupled with my own experiences and my own family with mental health challenges. So I mentioned my parents immigrated from Taiwan. They mm -hmm. uh, immigrated, they were chosen to immigrate here through a, essentially a, a brain drain immigration policy where the United States selects um, highly skilled workers from other countries and brings them over here. And for a lot of immigrants, they actually experience a drop in status when they come here. And that's exactly what happened with my parents. They, uh, my, my father was lower class, lower middle class. My mother was middle class in Taiwan. And when they arrived in the United States had uh, us, my older brother and uh, myself and my two younger sisters, um, they experienced a lot of systemic racism and that resulted in us uh, being in poverty. So at some point in my own upbringing, we were homeless. Um, there was violence within my own home. My father showed symptoms of psychosis. I mean, these were serious mental health challenges as well as societal challenges that were never treated. Um, there was enough violence in my home that I, that actually there were caregivers who were aware, other caregivers, like adults who may have been aware of the violence and yet nobody did anything. And this speaks to also, I think my passion for working with BIPOC communities and Asian communities um, even within the mental health system, there's white patriarchal supremacy. And um, so, yeah, that's kind of, that's how I got to where I am now. Uh, I'm a licensed psychologist as well as an adjunct professor. And I specialize in working with BIPOC folks from intersecting identities um, and that's, and, and that also, uh, overlaps with trauma, individual and systemic trauma. Yeah. We, um, we talk a lot about culture and how cultural influence makes everybody's experience, not, I don't want to say different cause that's not the word, but like 
unique or varied or um, along those lines. Uh, I had a woman that I used to um, work with when I was in grad school who was, her family was Taiwanese. And she would say that the struggle was not just here in the States and the stuff she was dealing with as a Taiwanese uh, woman and a PhD, but then also the expectation of the family that was still in Taiwan and what they thought she as a woman and wife and mother should be doing as in terms of with her children and her husband and balancing that connection between the two of them was insanely difficult for her. Does that resonate? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I think it's important to understand where some of those values and beliefs come from. Mm -hmm. And for Taiwan and really the overwhelming majority of Asian countries, um, I, I cannot ignore the fact that colonization has touched the overwhelming majority of, uh, of, of countries that are in the Asian diaspora. And so when I think about like uh, the patriarchal sort of beliefs, I wonder where, where do those come from? Um, yeah. When I think about this, almost like a survival mentality of, you know, you've got to be the best. Mm -hmm. Where does that come from? For mm -hmm. a lot of folks who I work with who's, who either immigrated here or whose parents immigrated here, there is this real belief in the American dream. Mm -hmm. um, and yet when we start to look at the American dream and start to dismantle it and really critically look at it, we see that it's uh, kind of a myth. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important to recognize um, for me and, and the way that I work with clients is just recognizing where do these beliefs and norms come from? Um, do they serve us now? Do they serve us then? Are they necessary now? They, do they come from a survival mentality versus a thriving mentality? And to really differentiate the, between the two so that, um, so that we can have more autonomy and more choice. Yeah. Um, before we get, because I want to talk about how you think culture and history resonates in somebody's current emotional state. Can you just define for anybody who doesn't understand, can you define what you mean by trauma and what you mean by emotional health? what those two things are? Yeah, so the first thing um, I wanna say about trauma is that it is defined by the person who experiences it. It is not defined by anybody else. Mm -hmm. There's a formal definition of psychological trauma, um, which is that it is uh, a state of psychological injury that is caused by a stressful experience that overwhelms us. Mm -hmm. And so whether or not um, a particular incident overwhelms us is that's, that's really based on our own internal expertise. Um, and there's lots of different kinds of trauma from acute trauma, which is a single incident, like a car accident, death of a loved one to chronic trauma, which is repetitive to complex trauma, um, which are those events that are both chronic and interpersonal and occur perhaps during vulnerable times in a person's life. And I think when we talk about trauma, we mostly talk about those sorts of trauma. Um, but uh, I wanna really acknowledge systemic or system-induced trauma, mm -hmm. which refers to the features in an environment, an institution, um, a culture that caused 
trauma reactions in an individual or maintain uh, trauma reactions in an individual. And these are things like racism, mm -hmm. um, homophobia, and other forms of discrimination. So what we're going through right now with a global pandemic, I don't know that a lot of people connect that back to something like trauma, even though we're all experiencing it in some way or another, um, or even a national pandemic, or even I'm in Florida and we're like, <laughs> we're always a hot spot for, <laughs> for COVID. We're like never not on the top three list. Um, and I, I like how you say that trauma is what the person, how a person defines it and that no one can really tell you if you're experiencing trauma, you have to sort of, is this, does this sound, am I summarizing this right? That you sort of know or can express it yourself? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, how does that fit with emotional health? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, so there again is a formal definition of emotional health. Uh, this definition I'm taking from the Collaborative for Academic, Social, and Emotional Learning, or CASEL. Mm -hmm. um, and they define it as having a healthy identity, having the ability to manage emotions, to achieve personal and collective goals, to feel and show empathy for others, mm -hmm. establish and maintain supportive relationships, and to make responsible and caring decisions. Um, so the outcome of having social emotional health or having emotional health is, um, or let me back up. This is, this is an outcome, an outcome that results from individual skills, but also results from environments that support emotional health. And I think that's the part that I can't stress enough, the environmental factors, because you know, the United States is a very individualistic society. And so we are really quick to identify problems at the individual level. Um, we have an entire manual called the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, and it only diagnoses individuals. It doesn't diagnose societal problems, but um, we know we have lots of research to show that emotional health is not just an individual construct. It actually arises from um, healthy environments. Mm -hmm. Can you exp expand on that a little bit? What is like, what makes up an, a healthy environment like versus an unhealthy environment? How does that impact a person's mental health? Because mm -hmm. obviously we can, we can point to things like abuse or um, neglect or like those are kind of maybe the ones everyone's mind goes to first, but there's so much more in there that would affect someone's environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um... I mentioned that trauma is really defined by the person who experiences the stressful event as overwhelming to their system. And when I say overwhelming to the system, um, I mean on a neurological level, on a neurophysiological level, um, stress is a normal part of life. And um, we have responses neurologically that are designed to mm -hmm. and adapt uh, to stress and specifically there's a little tiny piece of the brain called the amygdala. It's like the size of your pinky. It's in the middle of your brain. Um, and that's actually responsible for your stress responses, like your fight response, your flight response, as well as a freeze response. And sure, that can be caused by um, or triggered by abuse, by neglect, but it can also be 
triggered by racism, Mm -hmm. by poverty, really anything that is stressful, Mm -hmm. the amygdala. So our definition of what is traumatic um, really needs to expand and be more flexible than what our, like what our legislation says around abuse and neglect. Um, This might be a good time to talk about ACEs. Yeah, I was, I have um, talking about people, how this manifests in people's bodies and ACEs. So whichever one you want to tackle first, have at it. Yeah. Yeah. So um, ACEs are adverse childhood experiences. And um, one of the most rigorous studies of trauma is of these adverse childhood experiences. And they range from what you might think around abuse and neglect, but also things like having your caregivers divorce, um, having a caregiver be jailed, um, witnessing violence, either in the household or in the community, um, racism, discrimination. So these are all experiences that have profound effects on, uh, on people and especially children. Mm-hmm. Um, so let me talk a little bit about the impacts of, of ACEs and of traumatic experiences. Um, so trauma can manifest physically and neurologically. Uh, when the amygdala activates, all the other parts of the brain don't, uh, they basically go on pause. And that includes um, your higher order skills, the skills that you might actually need in a classroom, (laughs) like planning, like staying focused, um, avoiding distractions, sitting still, memory, all of those are, they go offline when the amygdala is activated. Now I mentioned that we are designed to cope with stress. Uh, When there are breaks from stress, when we have when we know uh, that we have a safe, consistent, supportive environment, safe, consistent, supportive relationships. If we don't have that, um, then we see behaviors that look like ADHD, that look like autism, um, mm-hmm. that look like defiance, um, that look like um, getting you know, poor grades, those kinds of things. If the amygdala is constantly overactive, then, uh, or if it needs to be constantly overactive, then those other parts of the brain uh, are constantly underactive. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Giving a lot of neuroscience here. No, I love it. Keep going. <laughs> so, um, on a short-term basis, there's some physiological reactions like increased heart rate, uh, higher blood pressure, um, and these are all to activate a fight or flight response. And that's okay if the body can downregulate and come back to a rest, a restful state where the body gets to heal, um, gets to kind of recover. The thing about chronic stress is that the body doesn't get to recover. And so then we see long-term impacts like uh, impacted immunological functioning. Um, so higher rates of heart disease, um, more difficulty uh healing from injuries more frequently and getting sick, that kind of thing. And when we pair all of that together, we also have long-term societal consequences. So like, you know, if a kiddo has experienced trauma, they're going to school, they keep getting suspended, they do not um, get the same educational attainment as other folks who are in a safe, stable and consistent supportive environment. 
Um, they don't have as much opportunity in life. Uh, they might engage in higher risk behaviors because we uh, we're wired to seek belonging. We are wired to seek safety, consistency, mm-hmm. uh, supportive environments. Um, and if the most supportive environment is a gang, then that's what we will, those brains will go towards. Um, the brain is remarkably adaptable. And then if you layer in that, you know, let's say we have an adult who now has this trauma brain. Um, let's say it's a female adult who gets pregnant and baby, baby is immersed in a stressful environment. And so we have this intergenerational transmission start to happen where adult who experiences traumatic stress, um, has a, has a physiology of stress. Mm -hmm. Baby is then, you know, kind of literally swimming in stress is born into a stressful environment and continues to kind of, um, that cycle continues to perpetuate intergenerationally until a safe and supportive environment, a safe, supportive, consistent environment and safe, supportive, consistent relationships um, are able to, to be created and to repair that. So this is where work like yours becomes important because um, you talk about and you work with people, like you were saying, um, people of color, uh, black indigenous, um, because when we're addressing racism, that is part of the problem that doesn't get talked about, how generational trauma just keeps perpetuating in generation after generation and people don't um, know to get care, don't believe in care, have been told it's not something that's helpful or just um, it's just so embedded in them that it feels kind of like a, like a normal, like flight or flight is normal. Just, it, 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 and I, I don't like saying normal because I know that there's so many connotations to that. Um, but that is what we're talking, what you're talking about, right? When you talk about how trauma embeds uh, specifically when we're talking about race and then how that affects people and how racism and trauma become linked together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I want to be clear because I think there's an assumption in the field that that interge- intergenerational trauma only affects Black, Indigenous, and people of color. Mm-hmm. And um, I want to acknowledge that you know, BIPOC folks, I'm, I make an assumption that if you are uh, BIPOC that you experience systemic stress of some kind. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's uh, the stress of, of uh, forced enslavement, the stress of fleeing from uh, a country where there is violence. And obviously that results in you know uh, chronic stress and the potential for intergenerational transmission of trauma. But even if you voluntarily immigrated here, there's still loss of of connection to the home country, mm-hmm. uh, oftentimes loss of hope mm-hmm. or disappointment in the American dream not being true, um, loss of status, shame. Um, if you're indigenous to the Americas, you know, obviously you've had um, a legacy, a, a history of, of trauma from genocide and forced removal, and then a continual, continual trauma because as a nation, we're very ahistorical and we don't want to acknowledge mm-hmm. that part of healing is first acknowledging what's happened. Um, And if we can't even do that as a nation, then yes, of course, we're gonna keep perpetuating this intergenerational stress and trauma. How does positive psychology factor into this? What is, I guess first, what is positive psychology and then how do you use that with folks? 
Um, before I talk about that, can I talk a little bit about um, the history of trauma in white populations? You can do whatever you want. Yes, of course. <laughs> when we, I want to acknowledge that when we look at ACEs and rates of PTSD and that kind of thing, we do see higher rates of that in BIPOC communities and especially in American Indian and black communities. Mm -hmm. um, but I also, I want to acknowledge that the perpetuation of some of these isms that we're talking about, especially racism, is also born in trauma. Mm -hmm. that unresolved trauma in white folks needs to be addressed. Uh, so I think about, for example, um, the initial colonization of the Americas and the reason, the rationale for that was that people were fleeing uh, some atrocious conditions in Europe. Mm -hmm. And we can, you can look up the medieval torture mm -hmm. <laughs> that happened that were popular, that were normalized. So we have this normalization of violence from Europe that gets transferred to the United States and the Americas, and that continues to be perpetuated. Um, and really, I conceptualize the experience of the early European colonizers as a giant fight and flee response. Mm -hmm. Literally fled another continent, uh, and then they came here and they still had the fight and flee response, and they continue to perpetuate that even to this day. And there, and we see that in terms of like fleeing from discomfort, which is mm -hmm. white ability, fleeing from emotional intimacy. Um, through segregation, through the creation of hierarchies, fleeing from emotions. You know, I, I can't tell you how many times that I've either heard directly or in, uh, been told directly or heard some of my other BIPOC colleagues being told they're too emotional. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, we see right now, even the fight response, we see the fight response in the continual killing of Black people by white dominant police structures. We see the fight response in schools when we look at who gets suspended or, or punished. It's black and brown kids. Mm -hmm. White response in uh, the most recent anti-AAPI violence, which has been overwhelmingly perpetrated by white. Um, so I wanna acknowledge that systemic, uh, this, this intergenerational transmission of trauma, it's, it's, not, it's not just BIPOC folks. This is a system. It's just that the trauma shows up differently and also white people are the people in power. Mm -hmm. Therefore, uh, with that power comes responsibility to really change, change the system. Yeah, one of the things that really sits with me that, um, I don't know if it was a meme, I don't know if it was, I read a lot of Maya Angelou, so it may have been something she said and I'm paraphrasing, but that the idea that we're all in, we're all dealing with pain in some way, like everyone is, it, it, you, if you're not, you're not, human or you're not, I don't know, maybe you just don't leave your house. I don't know, like you're, you're just not existing. It's just that some of us have had uh, a little bit of, like you say, uh, a little bit more power in terms of our pain and where we deposit it. Um, when you talk about intergenerational stuff, that, that tends to be what I think about. Um, but yeah, how does, how does positive psychology relate to this? Well, let me define positive psychology. Oops, sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Okay, so let me define positive psychology. Um, it's a field that looks at the strengths that enable 
individuals and communities to thrive. And this is in direct contrast to what most of psychology has been about historically, which is looking at deficits, diagnosing those deficits um, and talking about getting rid of the deficits, which gets us to neutral, Mm -hmm. um, not thriving, right? It's getting us to to zero versus getting us to positive. Um, And I entered into, uh, I have an interest in positive psychology because I think there's a potential for it to challenge the dominant narrative of being black indigenous, being a person of color is somehow bad or uh, you know, societally we can neglect certain folks. Um, and I also am drawn toward positive psychology because you know, we, we come, BIPOC folks come from a history of resilience. So for example, for me, I know that I am the product of generations of mm-hmm. fighters. Um, my, my ancestry, my lineage in Taiwan spans hundreds of years. Um, just one generation ago, my parents' generation, they immigrated to the United States. And my father immigrated specifically because uh, he wanted to study law because he wanted to go back to Taiwan and help liberate the Taiwanese people from colonial Chinese. Um, Just a couple generations ago in the United States, in the 1960s, the term Asian American was coined as a galvanizing force Mm -hmm. to to mobilize our communities toward equity. Uh, And then we can go back like 15 generations ago when um, colonization of Asia was happening. And there were so many people who were resisting that colonization through revolts, through rebellions, um, through riots, through negotiations. That's just my history, right? And this overlaps with so many other BIPOC, BIPOC folks history. If you are a BIPOC person listening to this right now, um, I want you to know that inherent in you, inherent in your blood, uh, is that source of surviving, of fighting, and of thriving. So that's really why I'm drawn to positive psychology, because I think we need to acknowledge uh, the strength and resilience of the community of our communities. Now, having said that, though, <laughs> it's still problematic that the field of positive psychology is still dominated by white people yeah. and white yeah there's no there's no immediate fix for that yeah Yeah. in general i think that's a problem with a lot of academic fields that we just are not uh it's just there's there needs to be more in terms of whose voice is brought to the table um can i ask you a question about um i have a lot of social work students and um i have a lot of a fair amount of students who are going into like therapy fields and things, but I tend to get a lot of social work students, especially since I advise them and help them find internships. Um, what, what, is, what is the first few days of, do you call people clients or patients or folks or whatever, wh- which one do you refer to them as? I say clients. Okay. So what are the first few things you do when you meet a new client? How do you kind of ease into getting to know somebody? What's your sort of way to manage that? I'm going to go on a small tangent. Right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> asked a really interesting question about mm-hmm. what clients or patients. Yeah. Um, me answering that question might give you an idea of how I work with folks. So I use clients because um, patients comes from a medical model. 
mm -hmm. classroom like that. The doctor is above and the patient is down here and let me diagnose the patient and let me tell the patient what to do. So I use clients because I really think of myself as working with folks mm -hmm. and that the folks who I work with, see, I'm not even using the word client now. I'm saying the folks who I work with. <laughs> it also feels much more human to say that. The folks who I work with on their healing journey, um, they come in with expertise already. I come in with some expertise and they come in with expertise. And I think so often uh, people enter into mental health or, or seeking mental health services thinking there's so much wrong with me, there's so much bad about me, when really there's so much, uh, especially with, with uh, historically marginalized communities, there is so much resilience it's just that the way that our society is set up is set up to um, uh, to kind of to prevent and really obstruct a lot of BIPOC folks from even accessing, acknowledging or accessing that resilience. Mm -hmm. So thanks for letting me go on that tangent. <laughs> no, it's actually, it's not that far removed. One of the first things you learn when you do, um, I do qualitative research and I do feminist-based stuff. And one of the first things that we learn is uh, not to call people subjects that you're interviewing or talking to because that removes you from them. Whereas the person is a participant or just a person you're interviewing or just a person you're talking to that you're not, you're not like removing yourself from them doesn't make you more a better researcher or a more hygienic like person. In fact, it actually does the opposite. It makes you come across in a way that's not authentic. So mm -hmm. it makes perfect sense. And I'm really glad that I know the difference now that makes me feel much more informed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So answer your question. Yeah. The first question I ask is, what are your hopes for therapy? Because that really puts the, the power in that person's hands. So I'm, I'm going to follow the compass direction that, that this person is, is charting or rather that that person is going towards. Um, and then I ask questions, I'm basically, you know, uh, what are your problem areas or what are the problems that bring you to therapy? Because most people are really good at talking about the problems. Mm -hmm. And then I start asking things like, well, what are you trying to go towards? So like, let's say in a few months, therapy goes really well. How do you hope that things would be different? Mm -hmm. And that can help folks to go from like a surviving mentality to a thriving mentality. And then I ask, what have you tried? What's worked? What hasn't worked? Because that also helps me to understand. Um, and, and usually people answer that at least there is something that has worked. Mm -hmm. But it's uh, oftentimes difficult to notice that. And it's easier to go toward what hasn't worked. So it's important to notice what has worked. Mm -hmm. um, I also ask about people's prior experiences with therapy. Um, and this, I... I think is really important for me to ask as someone who works primarily with uh, folks of color because oftentimes there's been actually psychological harm that's happened in prior therapeutic relationships, oftentimes with therapists who are um, not aware of their own identity and how they're showing up um, or not rooted in um, equity. Mm -hmm. So I ask that because maybe there's some repair and some healing that needs to be done even in the therapeutic relationship before we can get to the goals that, that this person is, is asking about. Um, and then I ask about their resources. I don't ask it like that, <laughs> mm -hmm. 
but I ask things like, well, what's helped with this? Mm-hmm. Or I ask things like, well, who, who is helpful for you in your life? Who do you feel close to? Who do you feel safe with? Mm-hmm. Um, and I ask that because everybody has some resources and I see my role oftentimes as uh, like an, a mirror, an accurate mirror that doesn't have fogs of racism, sexism, patriarchy, you know, an accurate mirror saying, hey, these are the actual resources that you do have. Mm-hmm. Those external resources, the connections with others, that's so important um, because again, most of the folks who I work with, they come from more collectivistic traditions. Mm-hmm. We know from neuroscience that healing from trauma, especially interpersonal trauma, um, really can only happen in relationship. So this idea of like, uh, you know, somebody sitting on the couch and talking and, you know, getting better, that's kind of a myth. (laughs) Healing doesn't happen in that way. Healing happens in relationship. Mm -hmm. So it's important for me to ask about relationships and where they actually find those safe, stable, consistent, supportive relationships. This has been so helpful um, in so many ways. Um, Anything else you want to say about trauma, health, how it manifests in bodies, any of the things you've been saying, anything I haven't asked that you just really want to put in there? (laughs) Um, I want to cite some research around resilience. Mm-hmm. Um, there is there's some research showing that over the long run, the most uh, common outcome uh, for folks who have experienced trauma, like these ACEs that we just talked about, uh, that the most common outcome actually is resilience. Mm. And I'm sharing that because there, I think there's this narrative of, oh, someone has experienced these traumatic incidents, poor them, we've got to give them things. And sometimes it's about society taking away things that can be helpful. So let's take away some of the isms that are perpetuating the trauma and let this person go on their kind of natural, natural course of healing. Yeah. So yeah, just wanted to share that. I love that. I love that. Thank you so much for talking with me and for talking with us. And I just appreciate the work people like you do so much because, you know, it's, it's tough. And yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes of most popular on iTunes and SoundCloud. More information, including additional resources for educators can be found on my website, adriantrier-beanick.com. And so you don't have to know how to spell it. The website is listed in episode notes. Um, I am on Instagram at at dr.adrienetb. That's at dr.adrienetb. Thank you, as always, to my students for the encouragement to keep making these episodes. And I will see you next time.